Welcome to episode 10 of History of the Marine Corps, The Marines Go to the Bahamas, Part 1. Last week, we took a look at some of the first Marines to join our beloved Marine Corps. These Marines would be the first officers in the Marine Corps and would fall under Samuel Nicholas, who is the first unofficial Commandant of the Marine Corps. We discussed the responsibility to recruit Marines and dug into some details about these recruits which included average age and height in colonial America, as well as the pay Marines were getting for their enlistment. While the Marines were recruiting, the Navy was building ships and busy recruiting as well. We end the episode by discussing a couple of naval battles that didn't go too well for the Americans and briefly discuss why. This week, we expand on the last episode and dig a little further as the Navy and Marines get ready for their first real conflict between British and militiamen in the Bahamas. This episode focuses on the challenges faced by the Navy, decisions made by Commodore Isaac Hopkins, and coordination from the Marines. This episode will also set the stage for next week's episode, which will discuss the first amphibious landing by Marines. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. During late 1775, Congress focused on building a navy for the colonies, and in January 1776, successfully formed a navy consisting of eight ships. Congress selected Isaac Hopkins to lead the Continental Navy, and they gave him pretty aggressive orders. Congress wanted him to advance on the British Navy and destroy their ships. Now this seemed easy enough, but there was a problem. The British had the best navy in the world. Most of the British Navy ships were much larger than the ships commanded by Commodore Hopkins. The Continental Fleet's largest ship was the Columbus, with 36 guns compared to most British ships, which had at least 60 gun ports. The Continental Fleet was also severely outnumbered when it came to manpower. Isaac Hopkins had about 200 Marines aboard his eight ships, compared to Lord Dunmore's 400 British Royal Marines on his six ships. This doesn't take into consideration Britain's generals Clinton and Cornwallis both of whom had dozens of ships with thousands of British Royal Marines on board. Chances of winning a naval battle was pretty much non-existent for the Americans. Congress did understand the odds Hopkins was about to face and added a disclaimer to their instructions, which stated, Notwithstanding these particular orders, which it is hoped you will be able to execute, if bad wind or stormy weather or any other unforeseen accident or disaster disable you to do so, you are then to follow such courses as your best judgment shall suggest to you as most useful to the American cause and to distress the enemy by all means in your power. Regardless of their chances, the Continental Navy had their orders and prepared to set sail. On the morning of January 4th, Six of the eight vessels were docked at the Willing and Morris wharves below the South and Water Streets. This included the two largest ships in the fleet, the Alfred and the Columbus. The Alfred was pretty noticeable, with the white bottom, a broad black band along the waterline, and bright yellow sides. The Alfred had two decks, 
The upper deck had 10 six-pounder cannons, while the lower deck had 20 nine-pounders. The Alfred's bow had a hand-carved figurehead of a man in armor drawing a sword. The Columbus's paint job was a little more discreet. It had a similar white bottom, but her sides were black. She also had two decks. The upper deck had 10 six-pounders, while the lower deck housed 18 nine-pounders. Not too far from the Alfred and the Columbus were the two brigs, the Andrew Doria and the Cabot, docked at Jane Cutbert's wharf. The Andrew Doria was the larger of the two and carried 16 six-pounders compared to the Cabot, who was outfitted with 14 six-pounders. Aesthetically, they were similar to the Alfred and the Columbus. The Cabot had yellow sides with the female figurehead attached to her bow, while the Andrew Doria had black sides and no figurehead. The Providence was nearby as well and was currently being outfitted with 12 four-pounder cannons. The Fly was also attached to the Continental Fleet and had six nine-pounders on board. While the last of the gear was being loaded on the ships, Marines patiently awaited their orders. Captain Samuel Nicholas was present, along with Lieutenant Matthew Park, Lieutenant John Fitzpatrick, and a company of about 60 Marines he recruited the previous month. They were all ordered to board the Alfred. On board the Columbus was Captain Joseph Shoemaker, Lieutenant James Dickerson, Lieutenant Robert Cummings, and their 60 Marines. Lieutenant Isaac Craig would join them as well with 38 of his men. The Cabot had Captain John Welsh, Lieutenant John Hood Wilson, and their 40 Marines. And the Providence had 14 men recruited by Lieutenant Wilson and 6 recruited by Lieutenant Craig. Lieutenant Henry Dayton would lead the Marines on board the Cabot. The fly would not be as fortunate and would not receive any Marines. Once the ships were loaded with supplies and Marines, they were ready to set sail. In the afternoon of January 4th, the fleet pulled anchor and set sail for the piers at Liberty Island in the Delaware River, south of their current location. The fleet's departure was apparently a sight to see. One colonial newspaper published an article that stated, The first American fleet that ever swelled their sails on the Western Ocean sailed from Philadelphia amidst acclamation of thousands assembled in the joyful occasion. Unbeknownst to the Americans, a British spy was at this momentous occasion and confirmed that the Alfred and Columbus set sail with the rest of the fleet behind them. However, the spy failed to mention the thousands of spectators. The purpose of this departure wasn't to attack the British, but simply to minimize the risk of being caught in the ice forming around the wharves. It also allowed the ships to wait for men who had not yet reported for duty. As mentioned in Episode 8, the Colonies Go to War, Part 2, the men who fought for the colonies were free. They were used to coming and going as they pleased, and the Continental Navy realized that this may be a problem considering the risk of embarking on a ship in the middle of winter with a crew who has little to no experience and on a mission to fight the world's strongest navy might be a bit high. The Naval Committee had flyers posted in taverns throughout the city, stating, Every officer of the Sea and Marine Service and all common men who have enlisted into the service of the United Colonies on board ships now fitting out to report immediately on board their respective ships.
the Naval Committee also threatened to try anyone who did not report as deserters. Smaller transport vessels were positioned at the wharves to carry any stragglers who showed up after the ships were underway. The next day, two letters were sent to Commodore Isaac Hopkins. The first letter was pretty typical, and it discussed behavior and conduct Congress expected of the fleet. Hopkins was ordered to make sure that all ships were disciplined, ordered, and that there was peace amongst men. The letter also ordered that all men be adequately fed and taken care of when they are sick or wounded, as well as taking care of any prisoners who were taken. The second letter was a secret, and for the eyes of Commodore Hopkins only. In October of 1775, the Southern delegate told Congress that building the Continental Navy was the, quote, maddest idea in the world, unquote. They did not believe that a navy would serve the colonies well, and preferred to invest those resources elsewhere. However, shortly after Southern delegates condemned the idea, British ships started to show up off the southern coast. With the appearance of the British Navy, Southern delegates quickly changed their tune and agreed to the Continental Navy, with the caveat that they received the first of their services and helped fight the British Navy off their coast. Congress would now have their navy, and wanted to show their value. Britain had enemy forces in Canada and near Boston. However, Congress decided to send the navy south toward the southern colonies. Congress's secret order stated that they wanted to see the unnatural enemies met with all possible distress on the sea. Hopkins was ordered to set sail as fast as possible to the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia. Once he arrived, Hopkins would search out and attack, take, or destroy all naval forces of enemies that he may find there. Now, the year before, John Murray, who was the 4th Earl of Dunmore and Royal Governor of Virginia, commissioned his own fleet of ships to help fight against the rebellion in his colony. On top of the small fleet, Lord Dunmore began shelling Norfolk, Virginia on January 1, 1776. Lord Dunmore also sent landing parties to burn specific buildings, which is why this incident is known as the Burning of Norfolk. The Burning of Norfolk enraged colonists, and Hopkins was ordered to take out Lord Dunmore. His order stated, Proceed immediately to the southward, and make yourself master of such forces, as the enemy may have both in North and South Carolina. So his first mission was to take out Murray's small fleet in the Chesapeake Bay. And after winning that battle, Congress wanted Hopkins to travel to the Carolinas and take out Dunmore's fleet, which was about 20 times the size of Hopkins' fleet. This feat seemed unlikely, but Congress was so confident in the Continental Navy that after Dunmore was destroyed, the Continental Fleet would sail to the north and approach the other British fleet in Rhode Island. The orders also sanctioned Hopkins to divide his fleet so they would be able to cover more sea. It was now January 5th, and ice was thickening at Liberty Island. While sailors and marines were waiting, supplies would be delivered to the marines on board the ships by the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety. They produced 37 muskets and 136 bayonets to Lieutenant Craig on the Andrew Doria. They also provided Samuel Nicholas 67 muskets and 60 bayonets, 50 scabbards, and 200 pounds of musket balls. Nicholas would also receive caps, coats, waistcoats, and trousers that the Marines would wear as uniforms. 
These uniforms were most likely blue and were very similar to the English cavalry uniform. And there they waited, until January 17th when the ice thinned and the ship sailed to Reedy Island in Delaware. The ice would thicken up again and the fleet would be stuck in Delaware for another six weeks. This holdup would have its pros and cons. It provided a lot of time for the fleet to build up quantities of sufficient supplies, but men were deserting at an increased rate. It was hard to stay motivated when dealing with smallpox, frostbite, the cold, and working day in and day out. Lieutenants would stand watch day and night, stopping deserters, and the locals in New Jersey and Delaware would capture deserters and return them to their ships. This delay also gave Hopkins time to think. Think about the orders Congress gave him, and think about the current situation. Before Hopkins left Philadelphia, there was a lot of talk about General George Washington and the desperate need for gunpowder. He was also privy to an intelligence report received by the Secret Committee of Congress that stated large quantities of gunpowder were located in the Bahamas. On February 11th at 10 a.m., the ice thin again, and the fleet sailed to Cape Henlopen. Here the fleet was joined by the Hornet and the Wasp. John Trevitt would also be promoted this day to Lieutenant of Marines and ordered to the Columbus. Before leaving port, Hopkins ordered every one of his captains that if they become separated from the fleet, they should sail to the south of Great Abaco Islands in the Bahamas and wait a minimum of 14 days for the rest of the fleet. If the other ships did not arrive, the Andrew Doria would be responsible for sailing to the British strictly with the purpose to annoy them. With these orders, Hopkins would abandon Congress's orders of taking the Carolinas. Hopkins was worried about confronting Lord Dunmore. Dunmore's fleet just received another ship, which provided equal, if not superior, firepower compared to the colony's fleet. This wasn't the only variable that concerned Hopkins. His men did not have any training in naval warfare, his fleet was made up of merchantmen who became sailors and marines, and the constant delays due to ice was a significant blow to morale. He would later testify to Congress that he would invoke their disclaimer that permitted him to use his judgment if problems should arise. He testified that strength of the fleet in Virginia was too much for the Continental Navy, which is why he decided to go against Congress's orders to attack Dunmore. About midday on Saturday, February 17th, Hopkins' men unfurled the sails, weighed anchor, and sailed out of Philadelphia towards the Atlantic Ocean. There was a favorable wind blowing, and as the ship started on their mission, Hopkins ordered Lieutenant John Paul Jones to raise a yellow flag with the rattlesnake and the wording, Don't Tread on Me. A delegate from South Carolina, Christopher Gadsden, would take a copy of the flag back to the colonists of South Carolina. This flag would be presented to the men defending Charleston Harbor and used as a way to recognize the fleet when they finally arrived. The name of this flag is the Gadsden flag. The wind would not be in their favor for too long, and shortly after leaving Delaware, the Continental Fleet would encounter harsh weather. The low visibility and heavy seas would cause the fleet's smallest ships, the Hornet and the Fly, to be divided from the rest of the Navy. What the Navy didn't know at the time was that the Hornet and the Fly ran into each other causing damage. The Hornet had to return to port, 
and the fly had to stay behind to make minor repairs. While the Hornet was under repair, Marine Lieutenant John Martin Strobaugh resigned his commission because he found, quote, the service by sea to disagree with him, unquote, and thought he could be more of a use fighting on land. The rest of the fleet made its way to New Providence. For about two weeks, it was relatively quiet from a weather and enemy perspective. Great Abaco was in sight, but so was two coastal sloops belonging to New Providence. The Marines on board the Alfred was able to capture the two sloops, and on March 1st, they anchored off the southwest side of the island. The invasion of the Continental Navy shouldn't have been a big surprise to the British. Britain understood the value of the Bahamas, and they anticipated colonial forces to attempt an attack. In August 1775, General Thomas Gage warned Montfort Brown, who was the governor of the Bahamas, that Americans wanted to take advantage of the state of the island of Providence and make an attempt to seize His Majesty's property there. General Gage suggested that he would send two transport ships and a man of war to New Providence and remove artillery, ammunition, and military equipment. However, despite the intelligence and recommendations, the Provincial Council denied Gage's request, stating that taking such action would expose the island to an attack from Britain's other enemies, the French and the Spanish. Even after the Continental Navy left Philadelphia on its first voyage, the British did not think the fleet would head to the Bahamas. They assumed the fleet would support Boston or New York. However, as the fleet moved its way south, more and more intelligence reports started to say that the colonial fleet was heading towards New Providence. The governor of the Bahamas wished to keep this information secret until the council was summoned and a decision could be made on the advancing Americans. However, the council was never convened. No one really knows why. Maybe they thought this was another sky-is-falling rumor. Regardless of the reasoning, the island did little to prepare militarily. With the British unprepared, Marines would capture some small local boats and use them to discreetly make their way towards the capital, Nassau. From an organizational and leadership perspective, not much has changed about Nassau. It's still the capital of the Bahamas, and it's still the administrative center of the Bahama Islands. Johann David Schopf was a German botanist, zoologist, and a physician. He traveled to the Bahamas and described the town. The houses are of wood, all lightly built and of simple construction. According to the needs of the climate here, attention has been given only to the roof, shade, space, and air. No chimneys are to be seen, and but few glass windows. The houses stand apart, surrounded by trees, hedges, and gardens. There is but one tolerably regular street, or line of houses which runs next to water. A church and an assembly house make up the public buildings of the town. There is no pavement in the town, but none is needed, since the streets as the whole island are almost wholly stone. The inhabitants of the town of Nassau are a few royal officials, divers, merchants, shipbuilders and carpenters, skippers, pilots, fishermen, and what laborers are needed, with several families who live on the returns from their lands and the work of their slaves. The real planters live near to the town on their estates. The Continental Navy and Marines were about 50 miles north of Nassau, and there was very little the town could do to protect against American forces. 
The town had two forts for defense, but they did not have a military to man the forts. Like many other British colonies, the defense relied on the militia to take arms. The town was also lacking any type of military leadership. The island only had one armed schooner in the harbor, the St. John. However, the St. John was in pretty bad shape and needed repairs. It would not provide adequate protection against the American fleet. The island once had a regiment of British soldiers stationed there to help against potential attacks, but due to the uprising in the American colonies, General Gage moved the 14th Regiment to the colonies for additional support. The only defenders were about 300 militiamen, but that number dwindled to around 140, since the majority of militiamen were preoccupied with fishing and other nautical activities. A week after the governor received intelligence that Americans were coming and took no action, another report came in from Captain George Dorset. He was on a whaling cruise and saw seven ships, standing in toward the land from the northeast. He notified the governor and was welcomed with the same response given earlier, keep this information secret until a council was summoned. But just like before, the governor did not invoke the council, and nothing was done with this information. After being presented with a second chance to defend the island and doing absolutely nothing with it, the governor was heavily criticized for his lack of action. On March 2nd, Commodore Hopkins learns about how defenseless the island is from the men aboard the two captured ships. He ordered the fleet to begin final preparations for the attack. Next week, the Marines will finally go ashore and advance towards the capital in their first amphibious landing. Thanks for listening. Join us next week when we discuss the first amphibious landing by Marines. This battle will be a huge advantage for the colonies and add one more blow to the British Empire. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.